While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had flow of blood for twelve years came from behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind man came in to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows of it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. And they went out, and behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed, And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest, send out the laborers into his harvest. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. And uh, before I forget it and get too far into my message, I need a couple of men to help me pass out uh, brochures that you can have in your hands to take home with you. So I don't know if we could have a couple of brave volunteers to step forward and, and just make sure that at least each family gets one or so, okay? Well, it is good to see you this morning. We have been excited to be back to Hope in Christ Church for quite some time. If uh, uh, we were here last August, let me ask you, uh, how many of you were here last August when we were here and I spoke? Raise your hand. Okay, great. How many of you were not here last August? I know we've got some visitors. Okay. How many of you really don't remember if you were here last August or not? Okay. Don't raise your hand to that one. Uh, I heard that there was a wedding here yesterday, and that went well. It's my understanding. Weddings are a good thing. How many of you are tired this morning, if you were really honest? Okay. Well, weddings are a good thing. In fact, my wife and I are going to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary in just about two weeks on June the 4th. So, amen. Amen. I want to uh, just briefly introduce to you our family. If you're not familiar with us, my name is Pete Frank. My family and I live up near Marion, about an hour north of here. And uh, my wife and I have six children. They're on the screen there. And I just want to real quickly brag on them for a minute, if that's all right. Okay? I'm going to anyway, even if it's not all right. So uh, this is Taylor right here. And he, uh, he's 22. And yesterday, um, our family was in downtown Chicago to celebrate Taylor's graduation from Moody Bible Institute yesterday. We're very 
thankful that he made it through that. I'm very proud of him. He graduated with a pastoral ministries major. And then we have Trinity here, and she is uh, 20, and she is taking nursing classes, hoping to maybe use her nursing skills and education on the mission field down the road at some point. And then we have Trey back here, and he's 18, and uh, he's about six foot eight. Uh, you can't miss him. He's not with us this morning, but uh, he's just graduated from high school. So we've had two graduations in about 10 days here. Uh, we actually, our family went to Florida, to Pensacola, uh, because we homeschool. And it's the first time we've done this with any of our kids, but Trey wanted to go down to Pensacola and graduate and walk uh, with about 400 other homeschooled Abeka students from all over the nation that were there in Pensacola uh, to walk and, and do the graduation ceremony. That was really a blessing. We did that last weekend. So uh, Trey is going to go to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and he wants to be a pastor as well. And then we have Tice, and he's 14, and he hasn't graduated from anywhere yet. So, uh, But uh, he is going into ninth grade. We're very proud of Tice. He loves the Lord. Very much. And then we have our two youngest daughters we adopted from Vietnam, and they're with us this morning. Uh, this is Michaela, and she is now nine, and Mackenzie is uh, now seven. And it's been about seven years since we adopted them. You know, time flies, I tell you, doesn't it? I mean, the years just go by so quickly. You know, thinking about our son's graduation from college yesterday, it seems like just a few months ago when we were dropping him off at the curb there in Chicago as a freshman. Uh, and they say that the college years go by faster than the high school years, and I believe that to be true. Any of you other parents experience that? Maybe for the students it doesn't go faster, but uh, we're very thankful for our family and how God has blessed us. I have the privilege of representing a missions organization called Gospel Link. Some of you are familiar with, with our mission and uh, planting churches in third world countries. Uh, this afternoon after the meal, I'm going to take a few minutes and kind of give you an overview of the work of Gospel Link as well as an update and some few, uh, a few inspiring stories from the mission field. So if you can stay uh, for a little bit after the meal, that would be a good thing. All right, Matthew chapter 9. I want us to look at God's Word again this morning. And uh, the title of the message is, A Heart Like His. And let's go to the Lord in prayer again this morning. Father, we quiet our hearts before you now, as again we come to the scriptures. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would stir within each of us, young and old alike, a, a renewed reverence for the word of God as we look to Matthew 9 this morning, among other passages. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help me as I break the bread of life. Uh, help me, Lord, to uh, speak the truth and to speak with an anointing for your glory. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply the scriptures to our lives this morning as only you can. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a heart like yours, each one here, Lord. And I just pray that you would do the work in our lives that needs to be done. Lord, you know that we're human. Lord, you know that we uh, still have the old nature within us that causes us struggle from time to time. And Lord, you understand that. But Father, I pray that uh, because of our time here this morning, we would have been made more like Jesus Christ and given a little bit more of a glimpse of what his heart is like. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 9, verses 36 to 38. If you're not at that passage, go ahead and turn back there. Thank you for reading that earlier. Uh, Matthew 9, when we come to this text of verses 36 to 38, this is really a transitional text. Because up until now, the disciples have primarily been listeners. They've been learners from our Lord. But from now on, they're going to be doers. And Jesus is going to take the disciples, really, in essence, from the classroom to the field. Okay, And he's going to use this, this text here to transition them. So let's take a look at this text and just unpack some things here. There's four truths this morning that I want to share with you. Uh, four uh, points out of here that I want us to be careful to notice. Uh, look at Matthew 9, 36 to 38 again. It says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they were faint and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. 
Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth labors into his harvest. The first thing I want you to notice that you can't miss in this passage is Christ's compassion. Jesus' compassion. It says when he saw the multitudes there in verse 36, he was moved with compassion. How fitting that this transitional text where he's taking his disciples from the classroom to the mission field hinges on our Lord's compassion. It says he was moved with compassion or he had compassion. What a great disclosure of our Lord's heart. And you know that as we go throughout the scriptures, you find over and over again where it talks about how Jesus was moved with compassion, right? He was the God-man. He lived compassion. Jesus' compassion moved him to touch the leper. Jesus' compassion moved him to feed the multitudes. Jesus' compassion moved him to take up the little children in his arms. Jesus' compassion moved him to weep over Jerusalem. When we come to the word compassion here in Scripture, in the original language in the Greek, it's the word splachna. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I've studied this term enough to know what splachna means. Splachna literally referred to the internal organs, specifically the bowels or the intestines. The Jews esteemed the bowels to be the seat of sympathy and the tender passions, and so aligned the organs to this sense. It is an emphatic word, compassion is, signifying a vehement affection of commiseration or sympathy by which the bowels and especially the heart is moved. This term was used figuratively to represent intense emotions. Many of us know from experience that when we have intense emotions, such as fear or grief, sometimes that will solicit We'll we'll feel that, you know, internally, physiologically. It will have an effect upon us, even, you know, specifically sometimes our our digestive tract. I remember the first time as a young Christian teenager years ago, many years ago, when I first really experienced a little bit of this kind of sympathy or compassion, uh, my parents and I were, it was a Friday evening, and we were sitting at the dinner table eating pizza, as was our Friday evening tradition. And the telephone rang. And my mom went into the other room to answer the telephone. And she came back in just a couple minutes, very quietly sat down. And she said, Carl Spencer was just killed in an accident. Now, Carl Spencer was a family friend of ours. And to to my knowledge, he was probably lost, probably didn't know the Lord. And I remember as a young believer in Christ, about 17 years old, I, I couldn't take another bite of pizza put that food down, and I pushed myself away from the table. I felt sick with sympathy. I went to my room, and I wept at the thought of where Carl was at that moment. This term compassion is used of Jesus, much deeper compassion than that, but his deep compassion for the crowds of suffering people. He was not only affected emotionally, he was affected even physically. Remember in John chapter 11, at the tomb of Lazarus, When Jesus came upon that scene, and Lazarus had died, it had been in the grave, and it it says that Jesus was deeply moved within. That carries the idea of of shuddering and being physically racked with emotion. He shuddered. And it says in verse 35, the shortest verse in Scripture, I believe. How many of you know that verse by memory? Now, last time we were here, we we were so impressed, seriously, at the emphasis of the word of God. God in your church and how you stood in a circle and as a church you quoted the book of James if I remember right. All right. Let me put you to the test. How many of you know John 11:35? Okay. <laughs> Who knows it? Who can say it for me? Jesus wept. That's right. Jesus wept. That's an easy one to remember. But you know that little verse there might be packed with as much meaning as as any verse in the scripture. Certainly It reflects the compassion, the sympathy Jesus had for the people there at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus lived compassion. And it's hard for us to grasp this truth fully. You know, the Lord of glory, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe. Colossians 1.17 says that all things were not only created by Christ, but consist 
by Him. In other words, they, they hold together. They cohere. The second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, who is now administrating right now the universe, holding it all together. He is the one who has compassion for a worm like me. Amen? Aren't you thankful for the compassion of our Lord? And Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He wept for the needs of people. I believe, folks, that if Jesus walked through our streets today in America, physically, that if he walked down the streets of Pendleton, that if he walked down your county roads, wherever you live, that Jesus would weep for the needs of people, that he would weep over the lostness of mankind. G. Campbell Morgan, the great preacher, said this. It's on the screen. He said, there is no reason in man that God should save. The need is born out of his own compassion. Psalm 86.15 says that the Lord is full of compassion. I want that kind of compassion in my life. I need more of that. How about you? So often as a believer, I find myself being condemning toward lost people. It's so easy for us to, for me anyway, to look down on lost people at their behavior. It's so easy for me to be complacent toward lost people and just indifferent. Lord, help us to be compassionate. Well, how do we get that kind of compassion? Well, I believe in a very important principle that is taught in Scripture, and I call it the principle of reciprocation, which simply means that God responds to our faith. I believe that if we want the kind of compassion that Jesus had, we need to exercise the compassion that's already in our hearts. Romans 5, 5 tells us that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts as Christians. That we have his love literally lavished upon us, it says there in Romans 5, 5. The compassion, the sympathy is already there as believers. Are we exercising that compassion? Because when we exercise it, I believe that it will grow. It's true of any godly principle. If we want a more of a godly virtue in our life, folks, we have to practice what we know to be true, right? If I want more mercy in my life, I have to practice showing mercy to those around me, extending forgiveness. If my wife wants more mercy in her life, she has to extend forgiveness toward me. She has lots of opportunities to do that, by the way, okay? God responds to our faith when we step out in obedience to him. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will what? draw near to you. That's right. He responds to our faith. The Bible says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-six says, with the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. And with the upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure, thou wilt show thyself pure. And so forth. God honor, faith honors God, and God honors faith. Right? 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face. Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. I'm thankful that God responds to our faith. So my point here as we close out about Christ's compassion is that if we want more of that in our lives, and I trust that you do, I need more of that, we have to practice what's already there. Otherwise, what's there will become stagnant. You know, it's real easy for me to pray for my little prayer list of lost people. And we should be doing that. We should be praying for lost people. But if my compassion ends with the amen at the end of my prayer, it will probably become pretty stagnant. Someone said it's a lot easier to talk to God about men than it is to talk to men about God. There have been a lot of opportunities I've had that I've missed when it comes to sharing my faith with someone. There's been some opportunities that I've taken advantage of by the grace of God. And whether that person was responsive to the gospel or not, one thing is sure, I walk away with more compassion in my heart. Sometimes I walk away with a tear in my eye. If I miss the opportunity, it just breeds indifference. But when I take advantage of those witnessing opportunities, God seems to expand my compassion. I found that to be true in my own life. I want to introduce you to one of our gospel-link preachers in Vietnam. His name is Tran Dinh. We are currently sponsoring close to 100 national preachers. In other words, Vietnamese church planters reaching the Vietnamese with, their, with the gospel. 
through sponsors like you. Several of you sponsor a gospel link preacher. We're so thankful for that. This is one of our close to 100 nationals in Vietnam. His name is Tran Din, and that's his wife with him. We were there a couple years ago at his house church outside of Saigon. And in one of his quarterly reports that he submitted not too long ago, he told about how he had a burden for the local Buddhist monks at the Buddhist temple nearby where he lives. And so he acted upon that compassion that was in his heart, that burden that he had. And he went and he spent, it says in his report, almost a whole week just getting to know these Buddhist monks. It said in his report he wanted to find out, what is it monks do? (laughs) I thought that was kind of funny. What do these men do? And so he spent several days with these men, just befriending them. And by the end of the week, he had shared the gospel with all these Buddhist monks at the temple. By the way, that's the house that he and his family live in, right there, okay, on the left, very third world. This is the main house church where he works out of. That's the front of the house church there in Vietnam where they worship. That's kind of his hub of operations there. All those Buddhist monks, though, rejected the gospel, except for one. He was able to lead this man to Christ. And that's a picture of Tran Dinh baptizing, amen, baptizing a Buddhist monk there in rural Vietnam because he stepped out in compassion by the grace of God to reach those men with the gospel. Second point this morning is man's condition. Man's condition. Look back at Matthew 9, verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted or they were faint and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Now let's kind of dig into this. I've got so many notes on here, I'm going to have a hard time deciphering this possibly. But there's a couple of words here in verse 36 where it says, because they were faint and were scattered abroad. Your translation might read a little differently. Jesus saw the people around him, and he was moved by the reality of their need. And so Jesus is going to give, the scriptures is going to give us here a diagnosis of the human heart, an x-ray, if you will, uh, uh, MRI of the human heart. And it's going to show us here what were these people like, not the facade, but really internally. Well, it says they were faint, okay? That word can be translated harassed, fainted, distressed, confused. It's the Greek word skullo. It meant to be severely troubled, and it carried the idea of being battered or bruised, mangled, ripped apart, exhausted, worn out. That's the idea you get behind that word. So Jesus saw these people, these crowds around him, the multitudes, and saw their true spiritual condition, that they were hopeless. Hopeless, okay? The second word that he uses, the scripture uses there is that they were scattered. The Greek word there is ripto. It could be translated dispirited, helpless, aimless. It seems like the first word is more of a matter-of-fact thing. The second word is a little bit more of the um, emotional side or the the humanness of this, and how it just left them aimless, uh, directionless. This word meant to be thrown down prostrate as from a mortal wound. These people were defenseless. They were spiritually battered, totally helpless, totally hopeless. They were lost. And it goes on to say that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if you can imagine, uh, children, can you imagine what sheep would look like if they didn't have a shepherd? What would they look like? They would probably just be Meandering around, pointlessly, aimlessly, no direction, no protection. Probably afraid, bah, you know, where's the shepherd? And that's the kind of picture you get here. These poor folks were just, they were hopeless and helpless. I mean, just directionless in life. They they were fearful. Their souls were uncared for. The pharisaical religious system had done nothing for them other than tie a bunch of man-made burdens upon their backs Their sins had separated them from God. So they were in a sad and pitiful state. And that's what moved Jesus with compassion. Listen, the people in Matthew 9 are not unlike people today, are they? The people around us, right here in Indiana, right here in America. The Bible says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Romans 5.12 says, for as by one man sin entered the world, and so death is passed upon all men. For all have sinned. It's in our 
DNA spiritually, isn't it? We're all sinners by nature. And the lost people around us are not unlike the people in Matthew 9, 36. They're just as weary. They're just as scattered. They're just as hopeless and helpless. Psalm 10, verse 4 is on the screen here. It says that the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. He's not even thinking about God. I was like that before Christ, really, before the grace of God engaged me toward the gospel. You know, it's, it's spiritual obliviousness, isn't it? I mean, they're not even thinking about God. And what is God's response? Well, we sang earlier about how God, or no, you read earlier, Steve, about how God is good from Psalm 100. Praise the Lord. And he's also a good and just judge. God is angry with the wicked Every day, the scripture tells us. That's God's perspective on the lost. And Jesus' compassion moved him to seek and to save the lost. Do we see people like that? You know, I have to ask myself, do I see lost people around me like Jesus did here in Matthew 9? Do I see beyond the the facade, the veneer of the physical, and really see them as lost people? Someone once said that every lost person has written across their forehead so to speak, a soul for whom Christ died. It's there. The question is, do we see it or not? Are we condemning? Are we complacent? Are we indifferent, oblivious? Do we see it? People without Christ stand condemned. In John 3.18, it says there, He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from England many years ago, said that they fainted for want of comfort, want of comfort. They were scattered abroad for lack of guidance. They were sheep having no shepherd in, a, in an ill plight. Unfed, unfolded, unguarded, what will become of them? Our Lord was stirred with a feeling which agitated his inmost soul. What he saw affected not his eye only, but his heart. He was overcome by sympathy. His whole frame was stirred with an emotion which put every faculty into forceful movement. He is even now affected towards our people in the same manner today. He is moved with compassion if we are not. The third point this morning is sin's consequence. Sin's consequence. It says there in verse 37 of Matthew 9, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Now what is this harvest? For many years in my Christian life, I thought harvest meant lost souls. I thought that harvest meant the elect that God is calling to himself. Or maybe it meant... Those that are seeking God or or the mission fields, you know, like over in Vietnam or someplace. That's the harvest. Well, it's always good to let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? So, in other contexts, what does harvest mean? Well, in Isaiah 17, verses 10 and 11, harvest refers to something very different. There it's talking about how Israel had forgotten God. In other words, Not out of their memory, but they had turned their backs on God's laws. They were not living in obedience to the commands of God. And so in Isaiah 17, it speaks of harvest as God's judgment. And it says, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. So it's talking about God's judgment there. In Joel chapter 3, would you turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 3? I want to take a minute to look this passage up. Joel 3, verses 11 to 14. Okay, Joel 3, starting in verse 11. And the scene here is the judgment, future judgment on Gentile nations. Verse 11 of Joel 3, Assemble yourselves and come, all ye nations. Gather yourselves together round about. There cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. 
For there will I sit to judge all the nations round about. Here it is, verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get down, for the press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. What is God's, or I'm sorry, what is harvest referring to there? It's referring to the judgment of God. That's very unmistakable. Okay? You remember in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Okay, you remember that parable? That there were wheats, or there were uh, tares sown in the field of wheat, right? Who sowed the tares? The devil did. The devil sowed the weeds or the tares in the uh, wheat field. It pictured Satan's effort to deceive the church by mingling Satan's children with God's children. Okay, it was a... This is Jesus' parable in Matthew 13. What does Jesus say in verse 30 of Matthew 13? It's on the screen here. Let both the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat in my barn. It's unmistakable that the the redeemed are going to be gathered, if you will, to heaven, to joy unspeakable. At judgment, But the point of the parable is here that I'm drawing out is the harvest represented God's judgment, okay? God's judgment upon the unredeemed. Uh, turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14. Again, the judgment of God in Revelation 14, verses 14 and following. Revelation 14, 14, it says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Folks, this is future judgment. And he sat He that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Verse 19, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Again, it's unmistakable. The harvest equates to judgment. I believe that here is the judgment of the ungodly. The gathering of them is left to an angel who cuts them off roughly when they are ripe for vengeance. So, folks, what I believe Jesus has in view here in Matthew 9 is future judgment. It says the harvest is plenteous. The harvest is going to be great. And he is Lord of the harvest, right? He is the righteous judge who will judge. Uh, it says in 2 Timothy 4.8, he is the righteous judge. In John 5.22, it says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment to the Son. So Jesus here in Matthew 9, who better than Jesus, the righteous judge, to proclaim that harvest is coming, the harvest is plenteous, it's great. Judgment is coming for the lost. Folks, judgment, condemnation, the wrath of God is on the horizon. It's like a big storm cloud gathering across the plains. It's real and it's coming. And the Lord of the harvest, Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, reminds us that this morning, Matthew 9, that the wrath of God is coming upon the unredeemed. The storm cloud is brewing, so to speak, and it's going to be here one day. And I want to hit on just for a few minutes here the the reality of hell and the fact that hell is real. Hell is a real place of God's wrath, eternal wrath and judgment. Folks, Jesus, we know, left heaven's throne and ministered compassionately. He ministered tirelessly because he could see the consummation of divine wrath toward which lost people are headed. 2 Thessalonians 1 on the screen here gives us a vivid picture of the future judgment. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction 
from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his power. Sometimes I don't think that Christianity in America, we hear enough about the reality of hell. It's not a pleasant thing for me to come as a guest speaker this morning, really, and, and talk about. But it's what's on my heart. It's what's in Matthew 9, I believe, and in Scripture. Books about hell don't sell well in a local Christian bookstore. But did Jesus talk more about heaven or more about hell? He talked more about hell. Warning men and women of the wrath to come. There's no adequate way for us to describe hell. Folks, I know there's no way for me to stand up here and, and help us all fully grasp what hell is like. But we do know from Scripture that hell is a real place. It's a place of conscious pain. It's a place of physical pain. It's a place of mental pain. Remember in Luke 16 when the rich man went to hell. He could remember his life here on earth. He could remember his lost brothers. Maybe he could remember opportunities that he'd had to respond to God's truth and rejected it. Mental pain. It's a place of eternal pain. In Mark 9, Jesus talked about hell being a place of unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. I want to tell you a little story here about the man on the screen. Have any of you ever heard of Charles Peace? Charles Peace lived back in the 1800s. And it was February of 1879. Charles Peace was a criminal. He did not obey God's laws, and he did not obey the laws of the land. Eventually, he was condemned, condemned to death. On the fateful morning in Armley Jail, Leeds, England, he was taken on the death walk. Before him went the prison chaplain, routinely and just sleepily reading some Bible verses. The criminal, Charles Peace, touched the preacher on the shoulder and asked him, What are you reading? The preacher said, Well, the consolation of religion. Charlie Peace was shocked at the way he professionally read about hell. Could a man be so unmoved under the very shadow of the scaffold as to lead a fellow human being there and yet dry-eyed read of a pit that has no bottom into which this fellow must fall? Could this preacher believe the words that there is an eternal fire that never consumes its victims and yet slide over the phrase without a tremor? Is a man human at all who can say with no tears, you will be eternally dying and yet never know the relief that death brings? All this was too much for Charles Peace, so he preached. He said this, Sir, addressing the preacher, If I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be on hands and knees, and think it worth worth it just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. And Charles Peace went on to the scaffold that day. Hell's a real place. Hell is a prepared place. Jesus said that hell is prepared for the devil and his demons. Hell is not prepared for mankind. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel 33.11 says that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I believe it grieves the heart of God that even one person should go there. And Jesus saw the multitudes. And Jesus preached to the multitudes. And he taught the multitudes. He, He loved the multitudes. He healed the people. To show that he was God and he died for the multitudes. That they might escape the divine judgment to come. And I just pray that God would help me and our family and and all of you to see the lost as Jesus sees them. The founder of World Vision, Bob Pierce, once said this. He said, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Amen. I pray that often for our family. The plight of the lost breaks God's heart. And Proverbs 24 says this in verse 11. Deliver those who are drawn toward death. Hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. Stumbling to the slaughter means bowing down toward judgment. These folks are bowing down toward, they're inclined toward judgment. The 
writer there says, deliver them. And then it hits on our responsibility, child of God. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Now listen, praise the Lord for what God is doing, not only in places like Vietnam, but right here in America. I'm telling you what, I get around to a lot of churches speaking for gospel life. I see a lot of good things out there. I really do. My wife and I come away from churches more often than not encouraged by what God is doing and how people are coming to Christ in these end times. Your church is an encouragement to us. Praise the Lord. I look at all these children. All the potential that's here. All the potential that's here. And to, and to see you parents raising your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's great. It's awesome. But there's lost people all around us, aren't there? Lost people, a lot of them, that need Christ so desperately. Right here in America, right in our Jerusalem, right across the driveway or across the street, right in our neighborhood. That leads us to our final point, and it is our commission, okay, our commission. Back in Matthew 9, verse 38, it says, Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Folks, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and Christ is building his church in places like Africa, in places like Vietnam, in places like Iran. Have you heard what God is doing in Iran? Incredible, incredible. Muslims are flocking to Christ. Places like China, all over the world. Places like America, great things are happening in this nation in spite of all the the bad that's going on around us. God has his remnant and God is building his church. The neat thing about it, what's really cool, church, is that he has called us to partner with him. We're his partners in the ministry. In his divine prerogative, Jesus could have chosen to fulfill this great commission by himself. But he didn't do it. That's not his plan. His plan is for disciples to make disciples. He's called you and me as followers of Christ to be fishers of men, to be engaged in the great commission. Acts 1.8 says, You shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. For the sake of application, we could say, be my witnesses in Pendleton or wherever you live, okay, Indiana, all of America, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's our commission. That's our calling. It's for us, this commission. It's not just for Pastor Steve or for the elders, not just for missionaries. It's for followers of Christ to be engaged in the Great Commission. First Thessalonians... 2.4 says that we have been entrusted with the gospel. He's entrusted it to us. On the screen, I've got 2 Corinthians 6.1. It says, we then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, and he is. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled. To God. Now look in verse 38 again. He says, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers. He didn't tell us there to pray for the lost people. Okay? Now it's certainly biblical and we should do that. Pray that the, the lost will be enlightened to the gospel truth. But here he tells us to pray that God will send forth laborers. I like that. Because it's real easy for me to pray for lost people, like I said earlier, and kind of just, you know, let, let my action stop when I get off my knees and say, amen, I'm done. Okay? That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, pray that God will send forth labors. And when we begin to pray that, we put ourselves at his disposal. God, pray for this person. God, I pray for this person. I know him. I have a burden for him. I pray that he'll get saved, but God, will you put a, a, a labor in his path? 
At that point, I become like Isaiah, really, of the Old Testament. Lord, here am I, send me. Not here am I, send my neighbor or my pastor, send me. We put ourselves at his disposal when we pray this. We enter the equation here. Lord, send labors and start with me. I was in uh, Ames, Iowa a couple weeks ago to speak at a church in Mapleton, Iowa, out in the middle of, I mean, you drive to the middle of nowhere, and then you go another couple hours, okay, that kind of thing. Well, out in northwest Iowa. Great little church, though. Very responsive to Gospel Link and to, to the message. And, but anyway, I was in Ames, and I stopped to uh, eat dinner at Taco Bell, okay? And I literally sat in the car, and I said, Lord, uh, use me to witness to someone. I want to practice what I preach. You know, I don't want to... I said, Lord, uh, send forth the labor. I'm a laborer. I'll go, Okay. And I went into Taco Bell, and, and the young man there at the cash register, his name was, was Nick. And they weren't very busy. There was no one behind me. And I ordered my food. And as I do sometimes, I pulled out a gospel track. So I thought, I'm going to give <clears throat> this young teenage man, he seemed like a nice young man, I'm going to give him a gospel track. It tells about Jesus. It's very concise, but it's good. And so I handed it to him. You know, I very seldom have anyone turned down gospel tracts. And Nick said, well, thank you. I said, it talks about Jesus Christ. He said, you will not believe this. Yesterday, another guy came through the line, handed me a book, and said, would you take this? It talks about Jesus Christ and the gospel. He said, let me go get it for you. I want to show it to you. And no one was behind me. I, I thought he might get in trouble by the manager. I looked over and she seemed okay. You know? So he ran back to the back room a minute later, he comes back with a book, and I looked it over. It looked like a good book about the gospel of Christ and how to be saved. I said, Nick, I think God's maybe trying to get your attention here, speaking to you. I said, I'll tell you what, let me give you something else. And I pulled out my wallet, and I said, here's another gospel track. It's called, Are You a Good Person? It talks, and I share with him for a few minutes about the law of God and how to try to get him to see his need for the Savior. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of time there, but I introduced it to him. I said, take this and please read it. He said, you know what, I think God is trying to get my attention. I said, I pulled out my wallet again. I said, let me give you something else, okay? <laughs> I said, here's my business card. It's got my email, my phone number. Uh, if you have any questions, please, please contact me. If you want to know how to be saved, I'll try to help you with that. I said, your eternity you know, depends on what you do with Jesus. You know, I walked away from that encounter with a burden for a guy named Nick in Ames, Iowa. If I had missed that opportunity, I wouldn't even know his name today. I would have forgotten about it. I prayed for him this morning. Whether he gets saved or not, and I pray that he does, I have a burden for Nick in Ames, Iowa. And God helped to expand that compassion in my heart toward him. Now, listen, as I wrap up here in just a couple minutes, in these last days, God is sending forth laborers into the fields. It's an exciting time for us to be alive, Christian. You know there's more lost people in the world today than at any other time in human history. What opportunities we have to take the gospel. God is sending forth laborers in places like Vietnam. I want to give you a quick update here about Vietnam. Okay? I don't know if I shared with you last time when I was here, but just a few years ago, about five years ago, remember, Vietnam's a communist nation, very persecuted. Voice of the Martyrs, just before the freedom they now have, Voice of the Martyrs had ranked Vietnam number four in the world on the most persecuted nations list. Okay, well, about five years ago, the central government of Vietnam licensed the network of house churches that Gospel Link is partnering with. Basically, what that means is that the Christians, the house churches, the preachers, the church planters that we are partnering with there in Vietnam, they now have freedom to preach the gospel like they've never had before. And I want to give you a, <clears throat> a breakdown by way of update just real quickly, okay, on Vietnam. <clears throat> we are sponsoring close to 100 preachers there now. About 15 of these church planters live in northern Vietnam, okay? 29 or so live in central Vietnam. Vietnam is on the Indochina Peninsula. It's bordered by Cambodia, Thailand, Laos, or Cambodia, Laos, and China. In the South, we are partnering with 56 national Vietnamese church planters, okay? It's an open door of opportunity that God has given for the Christians there that we're working with. 
the gospel is going forth. God is sending forth laborers in the field of Vietnam. This is a group of, uh, these are about 50 or so, about half of the men that we are sponsoring there, reaching Vietnamese people with the gospel. This is the last time we were over there. We're taking a group in June, taking 17 people in June over to Vietnam for a short-term missions trip. Lord willing, we'll get to see most, if not all, these men there. Here's the freedom that they have now. Okay? They're now free to preach the gospel. These men have never had this opportunity. Their wives have never had the opportunity like this to take the gospel to their neighbors and their villages. They're now free to distribute God's word. That's our Gospel Inc. National Director, Pastor Vaduk Ku. If they have the resources, they're free to build actual church buildings so that they don't have to meet uh, underground in their houses like they used to. Buildings give them more room for more people, and they also expose uh, greater exposure, more visibility. People are coming to Christ in the communist nation of Vietnam. People are being baptized to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Whole families are raising their hands. These are ministry photos from our national preachers. This is Nguyen Dang. He is a fireball for Christ, really reaching people as a laborer for the gospel. Children raising their hands for Jesus Christ. That's our national director again, Pastor Smiley, as we call him, because he has such a joyful personality. Former Buddhists are turning from their idolatry, burning their books, their idols in the fire to follow Jesus Christ. How would you like to be baptized in that? You go down, you may never get back up. This is an evangelistic crusade that one of our preachers there conducted. This was illegal religious activity not many years ago. By the way, a side note, I want to throw this in, okay? One of the greatest tools that our national preachers can have there in Vietnam is motorbikes. A motorbike will literally accelerate the gospel because it allows them to take the gospel to remote villages over rugged terrain that they would have had to ride a bicycle, try to, or walk. It literally gets the gospel to people faster. Churches are planted uh, more numerously. Disciples are trained. God has provided over 60 motorbikes in the last four years for our men in Vietnam. It costs about $1,050. And people in the states have responded and said, we want to help provide a motorbike for a national preacher. Listen, I've got some gospeling newsletters on my table. I wrote an article in there about accelerating the gospel and providing motorbikes for the nationals. If you want to stop by and pick one of those up, if any of you would be interested in helping provide a motorbike for a national preacher, I would be thrilled to talk to you about that. Okay. So God is sending forth laborers into the fields of harvest. What about us? How are we doing? You know, one of the accountability requirements that we have for Gospel Link is all the national preachers have to submit a quarterly report. They look forward to doing that. It tells their sponsor how to pray for them, villages that have been reached, stories about people that have come to Christ. I often wonder, what would my accountability report look like if I had someone sponsoring me in America as a national right here in America? Because we're all nationals to the United States. What would my report look like if I had to write a report Ministry details, how many people I reached with the gospel. Wow. What would that look like? I'm not sure what it would look like sometimes. Who is it in your life that God has given you a burden for? Who is it that's lost, helpless, hopeless, stands in the way of condemnation? Edward Kimball had a burden for a young boy in his Sunday school class. Edward Kimball lived in Boston back in the 1800s. It was 1856, Boston, Massachusetts. Edward Kimball had a burden for young men and teenage guys, and he really wanted to invest his life in these young men. So at his local church, he had Bible study with young men. Okay? And so oftentimes he would go out and visit them during the week to disciple them and encourage them. Well, one Sunday, a uh, rough teenage boy showed up for his Bible study. The boy was 17, he was poorly educated, he was prone to outbursts of anger and even foul language. Edward Kimball had a burden for him, though, and he thought, how can I reach this boy? So during the week that week, 
he went out to where the boy worked. The boy worked for his uncle at a shoe store in Boston, Massachusetts. It was 1856. Edward Kimball walked in front of that shoe store a couple times passing by, trying to get the courage to exercise his compassion to go in and share the gospel with this teenage boy. Finally, he entered. He found the boy in the back of the store unwrapping shoes and putting them on the shelf. So Edward Kimball went up to him, simply put his hand on the young man's shoulder, mumbled some words about Christ's love for him and the gospel. But apparently the timing was right. Because right there in the shoe store, the boy was moved to commit his life to Christ. That day, D.L. Moody came to Christ. He became the most successful evangelist, more than likely, of the 19th century. It was estimated he preached to literally millions of people in the 19th century before radio, media, TV, internet, any of that stuff. Reached many with the gospel. Later, Edward Kimball said this. He said, my plea was a weak one. But I was sincere. He said the young man was just ready for the light that broke upon him. For there at once, in the back of that shoe store in Boston, Dwight gave himself and his life to Christ. Isn't that a neat story? The story doesn't end there. Moody himself in 1879 was instrumental in the conversion of another young man, F.B. Meyer, who also grew up to become a pastor. Meyer subsequently led J.W. Chapman to Christ and discipled him. (coughs) Chapman became a pastor and evangelist. He started a ministry outreach to professional baseball players back in that day. One of the young men that he reached with the gospel became Chapman's assistant. You know who that is? Billy Sunday came to Christ through Chapman's ministry. In time, Billy Sunday became a preacher of his own. He went out to become... A great evangelist in his day. Some say one of the best, most used evangelists back in the uh, first couple decades of the 20th century. In one of his revivals in Charlotte, North Carolina in the 1920s, an associate of his, Mordecai Ham, who came to Christ through Sunday's ministry, was asked to come back to Charlotte, North Carolina, Mordecai Ham was, to do another evangelistic crusade a couple years later. On one of the final nights of Mordecai Ham's evangelistic crusade, Ham was preaching and a gangly teenager came forward to respond to the call of the gospel. Do you know who that was? Billy Graham. And the rest is history. You know, we never know what a simple act of obedience might produce. Many have come to Christ through the simple obedience Edward Kimball took that day to go into that shoe store and courageously, compassionately share the gospel. So I want to leave you this morning with, you know, who is in our life that needs the gospel? Who has God put in our path that we can faithfully take his word to? Is there a D.L. Moody in our life? Will we be faithful like Edward Kimball in going? As we go, we go with Christ's compassion Understanding man's condition, broken by sin's terrible consequence, and in obedience to the Great Commission. C.T. Studd was a great missionary back, lived from 1860 to 1931. He was from England. Okay? C.T. Studd was a, from a very wealthy family. He was actually a very good athlete. But he ended up following Hudson Taylor to China, to the mission field. God got a hold of his heart for missions. He wanted to be a laborer to go into the fields of harvest. And uh, 21 years later, C.T. Studd came back to England. His health was poor. He was discouraged. But God got a hold of his heart again. And he felt God calling him to Africa this time, to the mission field. Against the advice of his closest friends, and at the time leaving his ill wife behind in England, he went off to Africa to follow God's call. And some of his friends questioned him about what he was doing. And I'll leave you with this quote. He said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice that I can ever make for him can ever be too great. Let us not slide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer. Amen? Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil
will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for this great text. Lord, I pray that in in spite of me that you would use your word in our lives. I pray that, God, you would help us to see the lost and not to be content, Lord, with, with being just complacent. Lord, help me in that area. Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts toward greater compassion. Lord, the hour is late. We look all around us and the signs of the times are there. And I pray, God, that you would help us as your, your church to be the salt and light that you've called us to be. I thank you for what you're doing, for what you've already done in this great church right here. We praise you for that. And we pray that you continue to do a work, Lord, in the days to come. And Father, we thank you for the fellowship of believers here. We thank you for the Holy Spirit being our teacher, our guide. I pray that he would instruct us in the days ahead as we walk in your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.